0: Psychological Fragments by Porphyry, Iamblichus, Nemesius, and Ammonius Saccus. Translated by Kenneth Sylvan Guthrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Psychological Fragments. A. ON THE FACULTIES OF THE SOUL by Porphyry. Object of the Book. We propose to describe the faculties of the soul, and to set forth the various opinions on the subject held by both ancient and modern thinkers. DIFFERENCE BETWEEN SENSATION AND INTELLIGENCE. ARISTO. There were two philosophers by this name, one a Stoic, the other an Aristotelian. Attributes to the soul a perceptive faculty, which he divides into two parts. According to him, the first, called sensibility, the principle and origin of sensations, is usually kept active by some one of the sense organs. The other, which subsists by itself and without organs, does not bear any special name in beings devoid of reason, in whom reason does not manifest, or at least manifests only in a feeble or obscure manner. However, it is called intelligence in beings endowed with reason, among whom alone it manifests clearly aristo holds that sensibility acts only with the help of the sense-organs and that intelligence does not need them to enter into activity why then does he subordinate both of these to a single genus called the perceptive faculty both doubtless perceive but the one perceives the sense-form of beings while the other perceives their essence Indeed, sensibility does not perceive the essence, but the sense-form and the figure. It is intelligence that perceives whether the object be a man or a horse. There are, therefore, two kinds of perception that are very different from each other. Sense-perception receives an impression and applies itself to an exterior object, on the contrary, intellectual perception does not receive any impression. There have been philosophers who separated these two parts. They called intelligence, or discursive reason, the understanding, which is exercised without imagination and sensation, and opinion, the understanding which is exercised with imagination and sensation others, on the contrary, considered rational being, or nature, a simple essence, and attributed to it operations whose nature is entirely different. Now it is unreasonable to refer to the same essence faculties which differ completely in nature, for thought and sensation could not depend on the same essential principle and, if we were to call the operation of intelligence a perception, we would only be juggling with words. We must, therefore, establish a perfectly clear distinction between these two entities, intelligence and sensibility. On the one hand, intelligence possesses a quite peculiar nature, as is also the case with discursive reason, which is next below it. The function of the former is intuitive thought while that of the latter is discursive thought on the other hand sensibility differs entirely from intelligence acting with or without the help of organs in the former case it is called sensation in the latter imagination nevertheless sensation and imagination belong to the same genus in understanding, intuitive intelligence is superior to opinion, which applies to sensation or imagination. This latter kind of thought, whether called discursive thought or anything else, such as opinion, is superior to sensation and imagination, but inferior to intuitive thought. Of assent, Numenius. Who teaches that the faculty of assent or combining faculty is capable of producing various operations says that representation fancy is an accessory of this faculty that it does not however constitute either an operation or function of it but a consequence of it the stoics on the contrary not only make sensation consist in representation, but even reduce representation to combining assent. According to them, sense-imagination, or sense-fancy, is assent, or the sensation of the determination of assent. Longinus, however, does not acknowledge any faculty of assent. The philosophers of the ancient academy, the Platonists believe that sensation does not comprise sense-representation, and that consequently it does not have any original property, since it does not participate in assent. If sense-representation consisted of assent added to sensation, sensation by itself will have no virtue, since it is not the assent given to the things we possess. Of the parts of the soul. It is not only about the faculties that the ancient philosophers disagree. They are besides in radical disagreement about the following questions. What are the parts of the soul? What is a part? What is a faculty? What difference is there between a part and a faculty? The Stoics divide the soul into eight parts. The five senses, speech, sex power, and the directing, predominating principle, which is served by the other faculties, so that the soul is composed of a faculty that commands and faculties that obey. In their writing about ethics, Plato and Aristotle divide the soul into three parts. This division has been adopted by the greater part of later philosophers, but these have not understood that the object of this definition was to classify and define the virtues. Plato, reason, anger, and appetite. Aristotle, locomotion, appetite, and understanding. Indeed, if this classification be carefully scrutinized, it will be seen that it fails to account for all the faculties of the soul. It neglects imagination, sensibility, intelligence, and the natural faculties, the generative and nutritive powers. Other philosophers, such as Numenius, do not teach one soul in three parts, like the preceding, nor in two, such as the rational and irrational parts. They believe that we have two souls, one rational, the other irrational. Some among them attribute immortality to both of the souls. Others attribute it only to the rational soul, and think that death not only suspends the exercise of the faculties that belong to the irrational soul, but even dissolves its being or essence. Last, there are some that believe that by virtue of the union of the two souls, their movements are double, because each of them feels the passions of the other. Of the Difference of the Parts and of the Faculties of the Soul we shall now explain the difference obtaining between a part and a faculty of the soul. One part differs from another by the characteristics of its genus or kind, while different faculties may relate to a common genus. That is why Aristotle did not allow that the soul contained parts, though granting that it contained faculties. Indeed, the introduction of a new part changes the nature of the subject, while the diversity of faculties does not alter its unity. Longinus did not allow in the animal or living being for several parts, but only for several faculties. In this respect he followed the doctrine of Plato, according to whom the soul, in herself indivisible, is divided within bodies. Besides, that the soul does not have several parts does not necessarily imply that she has only a single faculty for that which has no parts may still possess several faculties to conclude this confused discussion we shall have to lay down a principle of definition which will help to determine the essential differences and resemblances that exist either between the parts of a same subject or between its faculties, or between its parts and its faculties. This will clearly reveal whether in the organism the soul really has several parts, or merely several faculties, and what opinion about them should be adopted. For there are two special types of these. The one attributes to man a single soul, genuinely composed of several parts either by itself or in relation to the body the other one sees in man a union of several souls looking on the man as on a choir the harmony of whose parts constitutes its unity so that we find several essentially different parts contributing to the formation of a single being first we shall have to study within the soul the differentials between the part the faculty and the disposition a part always differs from another by the substrate genus and function a disposition in a special aptitude of some one part to carry out the part assigned to it by nature a faculty is the habit of a disposition the power inherent in some part to do the thing for which it has a disposition. There was no great inconvenience in confusing faculty and disposition, but there is an essential difference between part and faculty. Whatever the number of faculties, they can exist within a single being or nature, without occupying any particular point in the extension of the substrate, while the parts somewhat participate in its extension, occupying therein a particular point. Thus all the properties of an apple are gathered within a single substrate, but the different parts that compose it are separate from each other. The notion of a part implies the idea of quantity in respect to the totality of the subject, on the contrary the notion of a faculty implies the idea of totality that is why the faculties remain indivisible because they penetrate the whole substrate while the parts are separate from each other because they have a quantity how then may we say that a soul is indivisible while having three parts for when we hear it asserted that she contains three parts in respect to quantity it is reasonable to ask how the soul can simultaneously be indivisible and yet have three parts this difficulty may be solved as follows the soul is indivisible in so far as she is considered within her being and in herself and that she has three parts in so far as she is united to a divisible body and that she exercises her different faculties in the different parts of the body indeed it is not the same faculty that resides in the head in the breast or in the liver the seats of reason of anger and appetite therefore when the soul has been divided into several parts it is in this sense that her different functions are exercised within different parts of the body. Nicholas of Damascus, in his book On the Soul, used to say that the division of the soul was not founded on quantity but on quality, like the division of an art or a science. Indeed, when we consider an extension we see that the whole is a sum of its parts, and that it increases or diminishes, according, as a part is added or subtracted. Now, it is not in this sense that we attribute parts to the soul. She is not the sum of her parts, because she is neither an extension nor a multitude. The parts of the soul resemble those of an art there is however this difference that an art is incomplete or imperfect if it lack some part while every soul is perfect and while every organism that has not achieved the goal of its nature is an imperfect being thus by parts of the soul nicholas means the different faculties of the organism indeed the organism and in general the animated being by the mere fact of possessing a soul possesses several faculties such as life feeling movement thought desire and the cause and principle of all of them is the soul those therefore who distinguish parts in the soul thereby mean the faculties by which the animated being can produce actualizations or experience affections while the soul herself is said to be indivisible nothing hinders her functions from being divided the organism therefore is divisible if we introduce within the notion of the soul that of the body for the vital functions by the soul communicated to the body must thereby necessarily be divided by the diversity of the organs and it is this division of vital functions that has caused parts to be ascribed to the soul herself as the soul can be conceived of in two different conditions according as she lives within herself or as she declines towards the body it is only when she declines towards the body that she splits up into parts when a seed of corn is sowed and produces an ear, we see in this ear of corn the appearance of parts, though the whole it forms be indivisible, and these indivisible parts themselves later return to an indivisible unity. Likewise, when the soul, which by herself is indivisible, finds herself united to the body, parts are seen to appear we must still examine which are the faculties that the soul develops by herself intelligence and discursive reason and which the soul develops by the animal sensation this will be the true means of illustrating the difference between these two natures beings and the necessity of reducing to the soul herself those parts of her being which have been enclosed within the parts of the body b iamblichus plato archytas and the other pythagoreans divide the soul into three parts reason anger and appetite which they consider to be necessary to form the groundwork for the virtues they assign to the soul as faculties, the natural generative power, sensibility, imagination, locomotion, love of the good and beautiful and last intelligence. c. Nemesius. Aristotle says, in his Physics, that the soul has five faculties. The power of growth, sensation, locomotion, appetite, and understanding. But in his ethics he divides the soul into two principal parts, which are the rational part and the irrational part. Then Aristotle subdivides the latter into the part that is subject to reason, and the part not subject to reason. d. Iamblichus the Platonists hold different opinions. Some, like Plotinus and Porphyry, reduce to a single order and idea the different functions and faculties of life. Others, like Numenius, imagine them to be opposed, as if in a struggle, while others, like Atticus and Plutarch, bring harmony out of the struggle. e ammonius sacchus a from nemesius on the immateriality of the soul it will suffice to oppose the arguments of ammonius teacher of Plotinus, and to those of Numenius the pythagorean to that of all those who claim that the soul is material these are the reasons Quote, bodies containing nothing unchangeable are naturally subject to change to dissolution and to infinite divisions they inevitably need some principle that may contain them that may bind and strengthen their parts this is the unifying principle that we call soul but if the soul also be material however subtle be the matter of which she may be composed, what could contain the soul herself, since we have just seen that all matter needs some principle to contain it? The same process will go on continuously to infinity until we arrive at an immaterial substance. Close quote. UNION OF THE SOUL AND THE BODY Ammonius, teacher of Plotinus, thus explained the present problem, the union of soul and body. The intelligible is of a nature such that it unites with whatever is able to receive it, as intimately as the union of things, that mutually alter each other in uniting, though at the same time it remains pure and incorruptible as do things that merely coexist. Indeed, in the case of bodies, union alters the parts that meet, since they form new bodies. That is how elements change into composite bodies, food into blood, blood into flesh, and other parts of the body. But, as to the intelligible, the union occurs without any alteration, for it is repugnant to the nature of the intelligible to undergo an alteration in its essential nature. It disappears, or it ceases to be, but it is not susceptible of change. Now the intelligible cannot be annihilated, otherwise it would not be immortal, and as the soul is life, if it changed in its union with the body it would become something different and would no longer be life what would the soul afford to the body if not life in her union with the body therefore the soul undergoes no alteration since it has been demonstrated that in its essential nature the intelligible is immutable the necessary result must be that it does not alter at the same time as the entities to which it is united the soul therefore is united to the body but she does not form a mixture with it the sympathy that exists between them shows that they are united for the entirely animated being is a whole that is sympathetic to itself and that is consequently really one what proves that the soul does not form a mixture with the body is the soul's power to separate from the body during sleep, leaving the body as it were inanimate, with only a breath of life, to keep it from dying entirely, using her own activity only in dreams to foresee the future, and to live in the intelligible world. This appears again when the soul gathers herself together to devote herself to her thoughts, for then she separates from the body so far as she can, and retires within herself better to be able to apply herself to the consideration of intelligible things. Indeed, being incorporeal, she unites with the body as closely as the union of things, which by combining together perish because of each other, thus giving birth to a mixture at the same time she remains without alteration as two things that are only placed by each other's side and she preserves her unity thus according to her own life she modifies that to which she is united but she is not modified thereby just as the sun by its presence makes the air luminous without itself changing in any way and thus so to speak mingles itself therewith without mingling itself in reality so the soul though united with the body remains quite distinct therefrom but there is this difference that the sun being a body and consequently being circumscribed within a certain space is not everywhere where is its light just as the fire dwells in the wood or in the wick of the lamp, as if enclosed within a locality. But the soul, being incorporeal, and not being subjected to any local limitation, exists as a whole everywhere where her light is, and there is no part of the body that is illuminated by the soul, in which the soul is not entirely present. It is not the body that commands the soul. It is the soul, on the contrary, that commands the body. She is not in the body as if in a vase or a gourd. It is rather the body that is in the soul. The intelligible, therefore, is not imprisoned within the body. It spreads in all the body's parts. It penetrates them. It goes through them and could not be enclosed in any place, for by virtue of its nature it resides in the intelligible world. It has no locality other than itself, or than an intelligible situated still higher. Thus the soul is within herself when she reasons, and in intelligence when she yields herself to contemplation. When it is asserted that the soul is in the body, it is not meant that the soul is in it as in a locality. It is only meant that the soul is in a habitual relation with the body, and that the soul is present there, as we say that God is in us. For we think that the soul is united to the body, not in a corporeal and local manner, but by the soul's habitual relations, her inclination and disposition, as a lover is attached to his beloved. Besides, as the affection of the soul has neither extension nor weight nor parts, she could not be circumscribed by local limitations. Within what place could that which has no parts be contained?— for place and corporeal extension are inseparable the place is limited space in which the container contains the contained but if we were to say quote, my soul is then in alexandria in rome and everywhere else close quote, we would be still speaking of space carelessly since being in alexandria or in general being somewhere, is being in a place. Now the soul is absolutely in no place. She can only be in some relation with some place, since it has been demonstrated that she could not be contained within a place. If, then, an intelligible entity be in relation with a place, or with something located in a place, we say, in a figurative manner, that this intelligible entity is in this place, because it tends thither by its activity, and we take the location for the inclination, or for the activity which leads it thither. If we were to say, That is where the soul acts, we would be saying, quote, The soul is there. Close quote b notice of ammonius by hierocles then shone the wisdom of ammonius who is famous under the name of inspired by the divinity it was he in fact who purifying the opinions of the ancient philosophers and dissipating the fancies woven here and there established harmony between the teaching of plato and that of aristotle in that which was most essential and fundamental it was ammonius of alexandria the inspired by the divinity who devoting himself enthusiastically to the truth in philosophy and rising above the popular notions that made of philosophy an object of scorn clearly understood the doctrine of plato and of aristotle gathered them into a single ideal and thus peacefully handed philosophy down to his disciples Plotinus, the pagan origin and their successors and of psychological fragments by porphyry iamblichus nemesius and ammonius sacus